If you're enjoying this Crush Step 1 podcast, you can now get the content along with the content of the Med Prep to Go Step 1 Questions podcast ad-free in one bundle. Just go to medpreptogo.com and find our new subscription podcast called the Med Prep to Go Step 1 Bundle. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I'm Ted O'Connell, one of the authors of Crush Step 1, the ultimate USMLE Step 1 review, along with my co-authors, Ryan Pedigo and Thomas Blair. I am also the chief content officer for Inside the Boards. This is the Crush Step 1 podcast based on the second edition of our best-selling book. The goal is to provide you high-yield and high-quality audio content of the book to help you study on the go and reclaim some of the time in your day. In this episode of the Crush Step 1 podcast, we're going to go over the respiratory pathology section of the pulmonology chapter. Pneumonia. Infections of the pulmonary parenchyma are referred to as pneumonia. Pneumonia can be classified based on anatomic distribution, causative organism, or whether it is community or hospital acquired. Typical or lobar pneumonia is usually caused by Streptococcus pneumoniae. Occasionally, Klebsiella pneumoniae, Staphylococcus aureus, Haemophilus influenzae, or other gram-negative rods may be the causative organism. Lobar pneumonias are characterized by intraalveolar exudates that create areas of dense consolidation. Consolidations may be lobar or multilobar, or even involve the entire lung, and are often readily visible on chest x-rays. Atypical pneumonia is so named because it presents without prominent consolidation, and has a less aggressive course than lobar or bronchopneumonia. This type of pneumonia results in patchy and diffuse inflammation in the alveolar interstitium. It is caused by viruses, such as adenoviruses or respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV, and bacteria not usually seen in lobar pneumonias, like mycoplasma, which is the most common cause, legionella, and chlamydia. Atypical pneumonia can be treated with macrolide antibiotics, such as erythromycin, azithromycin, and clarithromycin, fluoroquinolones, like ciprofloxacin or levofloxacin, or doxycycline. Bronchopneumonia begins initially as an acute bronchitis that extends into adjacent lung parenchyma. Bronchopneumonias are most often caused by S. aureus, Streptococcus pyogenes, or H. influenzae. Unlike lobar pneumonia, bronchopneumonia is multifocal, heterogeneous, and patchy on chest x-ray exam, with no clear lobar distribution. Hospital-acquired pneumonia is most often caused by gram-negative rods, such as Pseudomonas aeruginosa, especially in patients on ventilators, Klebsiella, and Escherichia coli. 
Pyruginosa is also a common cause of pneumonia and chronic infection in patients with cystic fibrosis. Pneumocystis pneumonia, or PCP, is caused by Pneumocystis gervechii, which before highly active antiretroviral therapy was the most common pneumonia-causing pathogen in patients with AIDS, those with a CD4 count of less than 200 per microliter. PCP is often suspected by the presence of its characteristic appearance on chest radiographs and hypoxemia in an immunocompromised patient. It is also often associated with an elevated level of lactate dehydrogenase, or LDH. First-line treatment is trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. Second choice is dapsone. Lung abscess. Lung abscesses are confined collections of pus within the lung parenchyma and are usually caused by aspiration of oropharyngeal secretions. Risk factors for aspiration include any condition that causes altered mental status and impairs one's ability to protect the airway, such as alcoholism, dementia, or epilepsy. The pathogens found in lung abscesses are usually a mix of aerobes and anaerobes, such as S. aureus, Peptostreptococcus, and Fusobacterium. Clinical findings include spiking fevers and cough productive of foul-smelling sputum. Chest radiography and chest computed tomography, or CT, demonstrate cavitation with an air fluid level. The initial antibiotic of choice is often clindamycin, which provides gram-positive, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, or MRSA, and anaerobic coverage. Lung cancer. Despite advances in cancer therapy, primary lung cancer, bronchogenic carcinoma, unfortunately is still the leading cause of cancer death in men and women in the United States. Smoking is the greatest risk factor for developing lung cancer and is believed to cause more than 90% of cases. Patients with lung cancer may present with a new cough, change in a chronic cough, dyspnea, hemoptysis, anorexia, or unintentional weight loss. Patients with primary lung cancers present more often with cough, whereas those with metastases to the lung from a different primary cancer most commonly present with dyspnea. Patients may also present with symptoms or signs related to perineoplastic syndromes associated with certain types of lung cancer. Almost all patients with lung cancer have abnormal findings on chest radiographs or chest CT, such as lung nodules, hilar lymphadenopathy, or infiltrates. A tissue or cytology specimen is needed to make the diagnosis. Superior vena cava, or SVC syndrome, is an infrequent complication of lung cancer that you should know about in addition to the perineoplastic syndromes. SVC syndrome occurs when a primary lung cancer compresses the SVC, resulting in swelling of the face, neck, and bilateral upper extremities, as well as visibly dilated veins on the anterior chest wall. The SVC is located in the mediastinum, so the presence of SVC syndrome suggests that cancer has spread to the mediastinum, a poor prognostic indicator. Next, I'll be going through Table 17.3 in your text, which describes various types of lung cancer, their locations, as well as high-yield information about each. Please follow along. Bronchial adenocarcinoma is located peripherally. It often develops at sites of previous lung injury or inflammation, such as in a healed tuberculous granuloma. It is the most common type in women and non-smokers. It can have well-differentiated glandular elements that stain positive for mucin or papillary lesions on histopathologic exam. Bronchoalveolar adenocarcinoma is found peripherally. It's unrelated to smoking. It can coalesce to give the appearance of pneumonia-like consolidation on chest radiograph and a possible perineoplastic associated with this is hypertrophic osteoarthropathy, a syndrome of digital clubbing, periostitis of long bones, and arthritis, 
it may present as a pain along the ulna or fibula. It originates from clara cells in the lungs. And malignant cells grow along existing alveolar structures without destroying them. Squamous cell carcinoma is located centrally. It's strongly linked to smoking. You see hilar masses often on imaging. They have a tendency toward cavitation. And a possible perineoplastic syndrome is overproduction of parathyroid hormone releasing peptide, which can cause hypercalcemia. On histopathologic exam, Keratin pearls and intercellular bridges are often visible. Small cell or oat cell carcinoma is located centrally. It's strongly linked to smoking. It's highly malignant with early metastases. Common perineoplastic syndromes are ectopic ACTH production or Cushing syndrome, ectopic ADH production or SIADH, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome, which is weakness from antibodies against presynaptic calcium channels. It originates from the neuroendocrine Kolchitsky cells. On histopathologic exam, you can observe small, highly basophilic cells that are poorly differentiated. It's generally inoperable because of frequent metastases, but it is highly responsive to initial chemotherapy. Large cell carcinoma is located peripherally. It's unrelated to smoking. It is highly malignant with early metastases. On histopathologic exam, it is undifferentiated and anaplastic with large nuclei. They may secrete beta-HCG. They're poorly responsive to chemotherapy and often treated surgically and have a very poor prognosis. Bronchial carcinoid can be located randomly throughout the lung. It's a low-grade malignant neuroendocrine tumor that rarely metastasizes and secretes serotonin. Sometimes it presents with wheezing in addition to more typical symptoms of lung cancer. Carcinoid syndrome rarely occurs but may present with flushing, diarrhea, wheezing, and hypotension. It's most resistant to radiation and chemotherapy, so surgical excision is necessary. Mesothelioma can be found adjacent to the pleura. It is rapidly progressive, arising from the pleural serosa. It's strongly associated with asbestos exposure, although adenocarcinoma still is more common in those exposed to asbestos. It's unrelated to smoking. It causes pleural effusions that are often hemorrhagic. Surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation are often unsuccessful. And on histopathologic exam, you can observe somoma bodies. Pancoast, or superior sulcus tumors, are located at the apex of the lung, it's not a histopathologically distinct type of lung cancer because most are actually squamous cell carcinomas. It's anatomically distinct, however, given its apical location, which may affect cervical sympathetic plexus, causing Horner syndrome, the triad of ptosis, meiosis, and anhydrosis. It may also cause shoulder weakness if affecting the brachial plexus. And finally, Metastasis to the lungs, from a random location, is more common than primary lung cancers. Breast, colon, prostate, and renal cell carcinomas are the most common primary cancers to metastasize to the lungs. They often present with multiple lung nodules on chest imaging. Pulmonary Embolism Pulmonary embolism is a potentially lethal condition that occurs when a pulmonary artery or one of its branches is occluded by something that has traveled, or embolized, from elsewhere in the body. The vast majority of pulmonary emboli originate from a thrombus formed in the femoral veins and other deep veins of the legs, known as a deep venous thrombosis, or DVT. 
When a thrombus is the source, this condition is called pulmonary thromboembolism. The three categories of risk factors for deep venous thrombosis and pulmonary embolism are collectively known as Virchow's triad. They are stasis, hypercoagulability, and endothelial damage. The basic pathophysiology of this condition relates to the severe VQ mismatch that takes place, as well as the impediment to forward flow and resultant pulmonary hypertension. Patients who suffer an acute pulmonary embolism often experience dyspnea, tachypnea, tachycardia, hypoxemia, and pleuritic chest pain. Patients suspected of having a pulmonary embolism should undergo CT angiography, which allows visualization of the emboli, or less commonly, a VQ scan, which looks for areas of lung that are well-ventilated but not perfused. Pulmonary thromboembolism is generally treated with anticoagulation using unfractionated or low molecular weight heparin initially, and switching to warfarin or a factor 10A direct inhibitor like rivaroxaban for long-term therapy. Occasionally, a massive pulmonary thromboembolism, or saddle embolus, may cause hemodynamic instability and precipitate acute right-sided heart failure because of the increased afterload. Saddle emboli can result in sudden death, and in these cases the use of thrombolytics or surgical thrombectomy is warranted. Most deep venous thromboses and pulmonary emboli occurs in hospitalized patients, so many hospitalized patients are provided with prophylactic dosing of unfractionated or low molecular weight heparin to prevent development of this potentially devastating condition. In addition to the thromboembolism originating from the lower extremity veins, other causes of pulmonary embolism include fat, air, septic, and amniotic fluid emboli. Fat emboli are typically associated with fractures of long bones, such as mid-shaft femoral fractures, and often present with petechiae over the chest and upper extremities. Less commonly, they can be associated with neurologic deficits, such as upper motor neuron signs and seizure. Air emboli are fairly rare, but may occur if large amounts of air are infused into the bloodstream as may occur if air is not properly expelled from a syringe before administering IV medication, or when divers rise to the surface too quickly, resulting in precipitation of nitrogen bubbles, decompression sickness, aka the bends. Septic pulmonary emboli are typically associated with right-sided bacterial endocarditis, such as in tricuspid valve endocarditis in an IV drug abuser because right-sided valvular vegetations can break off and lodge in the pulmonary circulation. Amniotic fluid emboli may occur in pregnant women during delivery or immediately postpartum. They are often very abrupt in onset and may present with profound hypotension and disseminated intravascular coagulation, or DIC. Pulmonary hypertension Pulmonary hypertension is defined as a sustained elevation in pulmonary artery pressure, which is normally 10 to 14 millimeters of mercury, to more than 25 millimeters of mercury at rest, or more than 30 millimeters of mercury with exercise. Pulmonary hypertension has recently undergone a change in how it is classified, and there are now five different groupings that will be reviewed. Pulmonary hypertension increases the afterload of the right ventricle, and can lead to right-sided heart failure. Pulmonary hypertension causing right ventricular strain or failure is called core pulmonale only if the reason for the pulmonary hypertension began in the pulmonary circulation itself, such as with a pulmonary embolism, COPD, or familial pulmonary hypertension, and not from another cause, such as left-sided heart failure. Pulmonary arterial hypertension includes all conditions in which the primary abnormality is confined to the small pulmonary arterioles. There is a familial form of pulmonary arterial hypertension associated with a mutation in the gene that encodes for bone morphogenetic protein receptor type 2, or BMPR2, 
a receptor of the transforming growth factor beta, TGF-beta family, that plays a role in the regulation of apoptosis and growth. It is thought that this mutation prevents normal apoptosis, resulting in the overgrowth of smooth muscle cells and consequent pulmonary arterial hypertension. Certain diseases are also associated with pulmonary arterial hypertension, such as connective tissue disease, most often systemic sclerosis or scleroderma, and HIV infection. Schistosomiasis is a parasitic disease caused by several species of schistosoma that is uncommon in the United States but is the most common cause of pulmonary hypertension worldwide. Pulmonary hypertension caused by left-sided heart disease. Functional abnormalities in the left side of the heart can result in increased resistance to the drainage of the pulmonary veins that can subsequently cause pulmonary hypertension. The pulmonary veins and venules are affected by the pulmonary venous hypertension and can undergo hypertrophy and fibrosis, resulting in pulmonary hypertension. Thus, any condition associated with left ventricular systolic dysfunction, such as congestive heart failure secondary to myocardial infarction, or diastolic dysfunction, such as in long-standing hypertension causing left ventricular hypertrophy, can cause pulmonary hypertension. Valvular disease, such as mitral stenosis, can also cause increased back pressure in the pulmonary venous circulation and lead to pulmonary hypertension. Pulmonary hypertension associated with lung disease and or hypoxemia. Patients with restrictive or obstructive pulmonary disease often have pulmonary hypertension. Recall that the pulmonary vasculature around alveoli with a low PaO2 will constrict to shift blood flow away from these alveoli toward those alveoli with a higher PaO2. This process of hypoxic vasoconstriction is critical to ensuring a good match between ventilation and perfusion, or the VQ, but can also result in pulmonary hypertension if chronic hypoxemia persists. Patients with COPD and obstructive sleep apnea, as well as healthy individuals living at a very high altitude, are often chronically hypoxemic and can develop pulmonary hypertension when permanent remodeling of the pulmonary vasculature occurs over time in response to their hypoxemia. Destruction of the pulmonary vascular bed, as seen in interstitial lung disease, is also associated with pulmonary hypertension. Chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension as discussed earlier in the section on pulmonary embolism, emboli to the pulmonary vascular bed create resistance to forward flow and can thus cause pulmonary hypertension. Some patients chronically suffer small pulmonary thromboemboli that may not even cause symptoms, and these patients are at particularly high risk of developing permanent pulmonary hypertension. Pulmonary hypertension with unclear multifactorial mechanisms. This grouping includes a number of miscellaneous causes. The most important of these is sarcoidosis. Sickle cell anemia can also cause pulmonary hypertension through unclear mechanisms thought to be related to hemolysis. Sleep apnea. Apnea is defined as cessation of breathing. Sleep apnea can be obstructive or central. Obstructive sleep apnea is the most common form of sleep apnea. The biggest risk factor for obstructive sleep apnea is obesity, present in 70% of cases, although male gender and age are also risk factors. Obese individuals with OSA have redundant soft tissue in their pharynx. When they fall asleep, the redundant soft tissue causes pharyngeal collapse and blocks airflow for periods of more than 10 seconds at a time. Although they often do not notice it themselves, these patients frequently wake up for very brief periods after these apneic episodes and often suffer from daytime sleepiness and chronic tiredness. Partners of patients with OSA often notice that they snore loudly and may even be able to observe apneic periods. Because OSA patients become hypoxemic during their frequent nighttime apneic episodes, 
their pulmonary vasculature undergoes hypoxic vasoconstriction. When left untreated, this chronic pulmonary vasoconstriction results in permanent pulmonary hypertension and can lead to core pulmonale, or right-sided heart failure secondary to pulmonary hypertension. OSA is diagnosed by polysomnography, a sleep study in which the patient is monitored while sleeping. Treatment for OSA includes weight loss and use of continuous positive airway pressure, or CPAP, which helps prevent pharyngeal collapse. Some patients may require surgical removal of excess pharyngeal soft tissue. Central sleep apnea, or CSA, is far less common than OSA and is caused by a neurologic impairment to respiration and lack of respiratory effort, rather than a physical obstruction to airflow. Risk factors for CSA include congestive heart failure, a cerebrovascular accident, advancing age, and male gender. CSA is also diagnosed by polysomnography. Obstructive versus Restrictive Lung Disease A number of lung diseases can be classified as having an underlying pathophysiologic component that is obstructive, such as COPD or asthma, or restrictive, like with pulmonary fibrosis or acute respiratory distress syndrome, based on pulmonary function tests, or PFTs. Before discussing several of these diseases in detail, certain PFT findings are helpful in diagnosing and differentiating obstructive versus restrictive disease, and will be reviewed here. Obstructive Disease PFTs In general, lung volumes in patients with obstructive disease are greater than normal because of air trapping and hyperinflation that result from difficulty exhaling fully. On spirometry, this is reflected as an increased TLC and increased RV, and it often correlates with hyperinflated lung fields on chest x-ray. FEV1 and FVC are reduced in obstructive lung disease, although FEV1 is more dramatically reduced than FVC. This results in a reduced FEV1 over FVC ratio of less than 0.8. Two classic obstructive lung diseases are COPD and asthma. Restrictive Disease PFTs Restrictive lung diseases are characterized by reduced TLC and reduced RV. Like obstructive diseases, the FEV1 and FVC are also reduced in restrictive lung disease. But importantly, FEV1 is less dramatically reduced than the FVC, resulting in an FEV1 over FVC ratio that is normal, or increased beyond 0.8. Thus, Restrictive lung disease is suspected when PFTs show reduced TLC in the setting of a normal or increased FEV1 over FVC ratio. Pulmonary fibrosis, sarcoidosis, acute respiratory distress syndrome, pneumoconiosis, good pasture syndrome, Wegener granulomatosis, and certain drug toxicities leading to pulmonary fibrosis, such as with bleomycin, amiodarone, or busulfan, are examples of restrictive lung diseases. However, extrapulmonary processes that negatively affect breathing mechanics can also cause a restrictive physiology. Such extrapulmonary processes include those with poor diaphragmatic or muscular effort, such as myasthenia gravis or polio, as well as those in which there are structural restrictions on the lungs, such as severe obesity, severe scoliosis, or severe ankylosing spondylitis. Pathology of Obstructive Lung Diseases Asthma Affecting millions of people worldwide, asthma is a chronic inflammatory disorder of the airways characterized by airway hyperresponsiveness and reversible bronchoconstriction-induced airway obstruction that is episodic. Asthma can result from intrinsic or extrinsic causes. Intrinsic asthma does not involve an immune reaction or elevations of IgE levels. An example of intrinsic asthma is the so-called asthma triad related to aspirin sensitivity, in which patients have symptoms consistent with asthma, 
nasal polyps, and sensitivity to aspirin or NSAIDs. Extrinsic asthma is far more common and is strongly related to ATP and type 1 hypersensitivity reactions. Environmental allergens stimulate IgE production by plasma cells, as well as eosinophil recruitment into the mucosal lining of the airways. Patients with asthma suffer from wheezing, cough, dyspnea, and a sensation of chest tightness, and their symptoms are often worse at night. A variety of triggers can induce an asthma attack, including respiratory irritants, allergens, infections, medications, cold air, and exercise. On physical exam, these patients often have audible wheezing during inspiration and expiration and a prolonged expiratory phase. They may also have physical findings suggestive of an atopic component, such as nasal polyps, rhinitis, or rash. Because asthma is fundamentally an obstructive lung disease, PFTs in patients with asthma often demonstrate a reduced FEV1 over FVC ratio. The reversibility of the bronchoconstriction experienced by patients with asthma is characteristic of the disease, and this is reflected on PFTs by a significant increase in FEV1 after bronchodilators are administered. The role of eosinophils in the pathogenesis of asthma is corroborated by the presence in sputum samples from patients with asthma of charcot-laden crystals, which are breakdown products of eosinophils. Sputum samples from patients with asthma typically contain Kirschman spirals, which reflect desquamated epithelium from the airways. The aggressiveness of treatment depends on the frequency of asthma symptoms. Generally, an inhaled beta-2 adrenergic agonist, such as albuterol, is used alone to treat mild disease and acute asthma attacks. Other medications are used to control symptoms and prevent acute attacks. These include inhaled corticosteroids, long-acting inhaled beta-2 adrenergic agonists like salmeterol, leukotriene modifiers like montelukast, and, less commonly, theophylline or chromalin. Oral corticosteroids are sometimes used for short periods to treat more severe asthma exacerbations. Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disease COPD is divided into two subtypes, chronic bronchitis and emphysema, that will be reviewed here. It's worth noting, however, that patients with COPD often exhibit characteristics of both chronic bronchitis and emphysema subtypes, which is why many pulmonologists consider these designations to be increasingly irrelevant. Nevertheless, you should learn them for the USMLE Step 1 and know that regardless of the subtype, COPD is fundamentally characterized by chronic airflow limitation, an obstruction that is not fully reversible, and that its biggest risk factor is cigarette smoking. This obstruction of premature airway closure results in air trapping and hyperinflation. Consequently, PFTs of COPD patients typically demonstrate an obstructive pattern, an increased RV caused by air trapping, an increased TLC caused by air trapping, and a decreased FEV1 over FVC ratio. Chronic bronchitis. This condition is defined as a productive cough lasting at least three months per year for two consecutive years. Its pathophysiology relates to hypertrophy and hypersecretion of mucus-secreting glands in the terminal bronchioles. This mucus gland hypertrophy can be characterized histologically by measuring the Reed index, which is the ratio of mucus gland depth to the thickness of the bronchial wall. COPD patients with chronic bronchitis often have a Reed index of more than 50%. Clinically, in addition to frequent productive cough, Chronic bronchitis patients tend to be CO2 retainers. They have a high PaCO2. They tend to become hypoxemic and cyanotic earlier in their disease course, and they tend to have an obese body habitus, which is why they are sometimes referred to as blue bloaters. Emphysema the underlying pathophysiology of this COPD subtype is characterized by abnormal permanent alveolar airspace distension distal to the terminal bronchioles.
the area affected in chronic bronchitis, resulting from destruction of the alveolar walls and surrounding elastic tissue. Because of the destruction of elastic tissue in and around the respiratory bronchioles and alveolar walls, these patients have increased lung compliance and decreased lung elastance. Moreover, the destruction of elastic tissue in the most distal portions of the terminal bronchioles results in a loss of radial traction that normally keeps these tiny airways open during expiration, predisposing them to collapse and air trapping behind these collapsed airways. All these factors result in hyperinflation with increased TLC that can present as a barrel-chested habitus, reduced breath sounds, and wheezes on physical exam. Chest radiographs will reveal hyperexpanded, hyperlucent lung fields with flattening of the hemidiaphragms. As you might expect, these patients often experience shortness of breath that slowly progresses. There are a few different types of emphysema classified according to its anatomic distribution within the lobule. The three major types are centriacinar, panacinar, and paraseptal. Centriacinar emphysema involves the central parts of the acini formed by the distal terminal bronchioles, but spares the distal alveoli. This type of emphysema is associated with heavy smokers and is often accompanied by chronic bronchitis. Centriacinar emphysema more commonly affects the upper lobes and apical segments. To remember this, recall that smoke rises. Panacinar emphysema involves the entire acinus, including the distal terminal bronchioles and terminal alveoli. Unlike centriacinar emphysema, the panacinar type predominantly affects the lower lung lobes. It is associated with alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, a condition that also commonly results in liver cirrhosis. Paraseptal emphysema predominantly involves only the distal parts of the acinus leaving the more proximal areas unaffected. This type of emphysema notably affects areas of lung adjacent to pleura and is associated with bullae that can rupture and result in a spontaneous pneumothorax. Paraseptal emphysema is thought to be the underlying mechanism of spontaneous pneumothoraces that occur in otherwise healthy young men. Bronchiectasis Bronchiectasis is a condition characterized by destruction of elastic tissue and muscle, resulting in a permanent dilation of the bronchioles and bronchi. It is highly associated with chronic necrotizing infections. Patients with bronchiectasis may present with a cough productive of copious amounts of sputum, recurrent pulmonary infections, and hemoptysis. Primary ciliary dyskinesia, allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis, Chronic bronchial obstruction and certain inflammatory disorders can cause bronchiectasis, but the most common and important cause for the USMLE Step 1 is cystic fibrosis. Cystic fibrosis Cystic fibrosis is a life-shortening autosomal recessive disease, most commonly caused by a 3-nucleotide deletion on chromosome 7, coding for a phenylalanine residue, this is abbreviated delta F508 for the deletion or delta of a sequence coding for phenylalanine F at position 508. This results in an abnormal function of a special chloride channel known as a cystic fibrosis transmembrane conductance regulator, or CFTR. The mutation affects the CFTR channels by causing them to be prematurely degraded in the cell's Golgi apparatus preventing CFTRs from reaching the epithelial cell membrane where they're needed. Lack of these functional chloride channels and sweat glands of the skin inhibits absorption of chloride and sodium by the epithelial cells lining the glands. The consequent increase in sodium chloride in the sweat is the basis for the sweat test that can be used to diagnose cystic fibrosis. In epithelial cell membranes, the lack of CFTR prevents secretion of chloride into the luminal space and promotes increased resorption of sodium and water from the luminal space into the epithelial cells. In the lung, 
This results in dehydrated airway mucus and secretions that are difficult for ciliated cells in the airway to sweep toward the mouth as intended. Because mucociliary clearance is impaired, the thick dehydrated mucus that remains in the airways becomes a nidus for bacterial growth, most commonly with Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which predisposes cystic fibrosis patients to chronic necrotizing airway infections and bronchiectasis. Clinically, cystic fibrosis presents with chronic productive cough, airway obstruction, and nasal polyps. Respiratory infection is the most common cause of death in cystic fibrosis. Because CFTR channels are found in the exocrine glands and epithelial linings of the GI and reproductive systems as well, patients with cystic fibrosis suffer from widespread problems in all these organs, in addition to the respiratory difficulties mentioned. In the GI system, cystic fibrosis often initially presents as meconium ileus in the young infant, where the infant is unable to produce his or her first stool after birth because of the intestinal obstruction caused by dehydrated stool. In the exocrine system, chronic pancreatitis resulting in malabsorption and diabetes mellitus secondary to pancreatic dysfunction are common complications. Infertility affects men and women with cystic fibrosis, though it is more severe in men. In men with cystic fibrosis, infertility is caused by an absent vas deferens, whereas thickened cervical mucus secretions and malnutrition are often why women with cystic fibrosis have fertility problems. Pathology of Restrictive Lung Diseases Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome, or ARDS, is the leading cause of acute respiratory failure in the United States. Its underlying pathogenesis relates to a diffuse inflammatory process involving both lungs, resulting in a non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema and bilateral lung consolidations. It is the final common pathway of lung injury, and a number of conditions predispose patients to developing ARDS, including sepsis, pneumonia, pulmonary contusions, intracranial hypertension, blood product transfusions, cardiopulmonary bypass, pancreatitis, amniotic fluid embolism, and long bone fractures. When critical damage to the alveolar capillary membranes occurs, the permeability of these membranes increases, and a massive influx of inflammatory cells such as neutrophils and macrophages enter the alveoli. This constitutes the exudative inflammatory phase of ARDS. In the fibroproliferative phase of the disease, chronic inflammatory cells release cytokines, chemokines, growth factors, and angiogenic mediators, eventually resulting in fibrosis and stiff non-compliant lungs that are edematous and atelectatic. The marked infiltration of inflammatory cells in the alveolar spaces increases VQ mismatch and results in significant shunting, which presents as profound hypoxemia and respiratory distress. ARDS is diagnosed by observing profound hypoxemia unresponsive to 100% oxygen, an elevated AA gradient, and bilateral fluffy infiltrates on chest x-ray all in the presence of a pulmonary capillary wedge pressure less than 18 millimeters of mercury. Wedge pressures of greater than 18 millimeters of mercury suggest a likely cardiogenic component. The poor oxygenation and shunting in ARDS patients is treated with careful fluid management, endotracheal intubation, and mechanical ventilation using positive end expiratory pressure, or PEEP. PEEP is used to recruit alveoli that are collapsed or otherwise filled with fluid and an inflammatory infiltrate, improving their ability to participate in gas exchange, thus reducing shunting and alleviating the patient's hypoxemia. An important adverse effect of PEEP is that it can reduce cardiac output, except in heart failure patients in whom PEEP may increase cardiac output by decreasing afterload. Cardiac output is reduced because the positive intrathoracic pressure that PEEP creates can reduce venous return to the heart. The positive pressure used in PEEP can also cause alveoli to rupture, resulting in a spontaneous pneumothorax. 
Neonatal Respiratory Distress Syndrome. Neonatal Respiratory Distress Syndrome, or NRDS, is a feared complication in newborns caused by a deficiency of surfactant. Recall that surfactant is made by type 2 alveolar cells and reduces surface tension on the surface of the alveoli so that they can expand more easily during inspiration. Therefore, when an insufficient amount of surfactant is present, widespread alveolar collapse ensues. This leads to intrapulmonary shunting because of massive atelectasis, resulting in hypoxemia and respiratory distress. Neonates with NRDS present with grunting, intercostal retractions, and tachypnea. It is worth recalling that neonates depend on increased oxygen tension after birth to close the ductus arteriosus, so neonates who are hypoxemic because of NRDS often have patent ductus arteriosus. Prematurity is the greatest risk factor for NRDS because the lamellar bodies in type 2 alveolar cells that produce surfactant first appear late in gestation. Recall that surfactant production is not mature until approximately 34 to 35 weeks gestation. Fetal exposure to corticosteroids is important in inducing surfactant production, and the stress of vaginal delivery on the fetus often increases fetal corticosteroid production. Neonates who undergo cesarean delivery are at increased risk for NRDS because they're not exposed to the stress of vaginal delivery and may not experience the stress-induced increase in corticosteroids that stimulates surfactant production. Finally, elevated insulin levels in the fetus also reduce surfactant production, making maternal diabetes another risk factor for NRDS. NRDS can be prevented by assessing fetal lung maturity when risk factors for NRDS are present or anticipated. Fetal lung maturity is assessed by checking the lecithin to sphingomyelin ratio of amniotic fluid. A ratio more than 2.0 indicates sufficient lung maturity, and a ratio less than 1.5 is concerning for the development of NRDS after birth. If a low lecithin to sphingomyelin ratio is detected, surfactant production can be increased by giving the mother a course of corticosteroids. Thyroxine can also be given to the mother to increase lung maturity, although this is not commonly done. The actual treatment of neonates suffering from NRDS involves the administration of exogenous surfactant and provision of oxygen-assisted ventilation. Sarcoidosis Sarcoidosis is a multi-system, immune-mediated granulomatous disease of unknown cause that accounts for approximately 25% of interstitial lung diseases. It is more common in women and in African Americans, and many exam questions involving sarcoidosis feature female African American patients. The pathogenesis of sarcoidosis involves the CD4 helper T cells interacting with unknown antigens, releasing inflammatory cytokines and causing the formation of non-caseating granulomas. Sarcoidosis is a diagnosis of exclusion, but has certain patterns and findings that assist in the diagnosis. The disease affects multiple organs, but the lung is most commonly involved. In the lungs, granuloma formation in the parenchyma and hilar lymph nodes is characteristic of sarcoidosis, and dyspnea is a common symptom. Chest X-ray often shows enlarged mediastinal and hilar lymph nodes, and often demonstrates interstitial lung disease. Angiotensin-converting enzyme, or ACE levels, are sometimes elevated in sarcoidosis, although this is a nonspecific finding. Hypercalcemia may also occur because of hypervitaminosis D caused by increased synthesis of 1-alpha-hydroxylase within the granulomas. Because it is a primarily CD4-TH cell-mediated disease, the ratio of CD4 to CD8 cells is high when measured in bronchoalveolar lavage fluid. Lung biopsies showing non-caseating granulomas not caused by a detectable infectious organism is also highly suggestive of sarcoidosis. Non-pulmonary manifestations of sarcoidosis are also often seen and can assist in diagnosis. Nodular skin lesions containing non-caseating granulomas may occur. As in other granulomatous diseases, such as Crohn's disease, 
Erythema nodosum, or painful erythematous nodules caused by subcutaneous fat inflammation, may be seen on the shins of patients with sarcoidosis. Uveitis is a painful inflammation of the middle layer of the eye that may also be seen in sarcoidosis. The disease often goes into remission spontaneously but may require treatment with corticosteroids. Hypersensitivity pneumonitis Hypersensitivity pneumonitis is an extrinsic allergic alveolitis caused by a known inhaled antigen. It is not a type 1 hypersensitivity reaction because it does not involve IgE antibody production and does not cause eosinophilia. The diagnosis is difficult to make but can be reached by obtaining a thorough exposure history and confirming the relationship of a known antigen with a patient's symptoms. In some cases, bronchoalveolar lavage can be helpful because in hypersensitivity pneumonitis, it may show dramatic lymphocytosis and a low ratio of CD4 to CD8 cells, the opposite of sarcoidosis. The best treatment for hypersensitivity pneumonitis is avoidance of the precipitating antigen and proper occupational measures, such as wearing a face mask. There are a few specific varieties of hypersensitivity pneumonitis of which you should be aware. Farmer's lung is most often caused by exposure to thermophilic actinomycetes in moldy hay or grain that results in type 3, or immune complex mediated, and type 4, delayed type T cell mediated, hypersensitivity reactions. Bisonosis is often seen in textile workers who are exposed to linen, cotton, and hemp products. Silofillers disease is associated with the inhalation of gases containing oxides of nitrogen. And bird fancier's lung is caused by exposure to an antigen found in bird droppings, such as pigeons or parrots. Pneumoconioses Pneumoconioses are lung diseases that result from the inhalation of mineral dust and other small microparticles. With time, inhalation of these microparticles can cause significant lung and pleural damage, leading to interstitial fibrosis, and can also increase the risk of developing certain lung cancers. There are several pneumoconioses with which you should be familiar that will be reviewed here. Pay close attention to the exposures associated with each disease, because they're likely to be helpful in differentiating them on USMLE Step 1. Silicosis. This is the most common occupational pneumoconiosis and is most often associated with work in foundries, mines, and sandblasting. Quartz is a highly fibrogenic material that deposits in the upper lung lobes, activates macrophages there, and causes them to release cytokines that promote collagen deposition and fibrogenesis. The quartz is actually believed to destroy macrophages as well, which may be why patients with silicosis are at increased risk for tuberculosis. Patients with silicosis also have an increased risk of developing primary lung cancer. The classic finding of silicosis on chest x-ray is eggshell calcification of the hilar lymph nodes. Coal workers' pneumoconiosis. This occurs with the chronic inhalation of anthracotic pigments, or coal dust, and is associated with coal mining. The disease predominantly affects the upper lobes and upper portions of the lower lobes. Simple coal workers' pneumoconiosis is characterized by fibrotic opacities smaller than 1 centimeter. Complicated coal workers' pneumoconiosis results in progressive massive fibrosis and is characterized by fibrotic opacities larger than 1 to 2 centimeters, possibly with necrotic centers. The complicated form of co-workers pneumoconiosis can be debilitating, and is often called black lung disease because of the black coloration caused by the anthracotic pigment deposition in the lung tissue. On histologic exam, blackened masses of coal dust particles gathered by macrophages, called dust cells, may be seen along the alveolar walls. Coal workers' pneumoconiosis is not associated with an increased risk of tuberculosis or primary lung cancer, but patients with coal workers' pneumoconiosis may develop corpulmonale and are at increased risk for developing Kaplan syndrome. Kaplan syndrome can be diagnosed in the presence of any pneumoconiosis presenting with intrapulmonary nodules and rheumatoid arthritis. 
The feared complication of co-worker's pneumoconiosis is progressive massive fibrosis, in which, as the name implies, severe pulmonary fibrosis occurs and progresses. Asbestosis. This is associated with asbestos inhalation from exposure to shipbuilding, insulation around plumbing, roofing material, floor tile, and ceiling tile. Asbestos fibers deposit inside the alveoli when inhaled. Alveolar macrophages phagocytose the asbestos fibers and coat them with iron, creating golden-brown, fusiform, dumbbell-shaped rods within the macrophages called asbestos bodies or ferruginous bodies. Unlike co-workers' pneumoconiosis and silicosis, asbestosis predominantly affects the lower lobes. Asbestosis usually causes benign calcified pleural plaques, which are not malignant precursors. Asbestosis is associated with an increased risk of mesothelioma, a malignancy with a poor prognosis that arises from the pleural serosa and eventually encases and traps the lungs. Despite the strong association with mesothelioma, the most common malignancy associated with asbestosis is bronchogenic carcinoma. Asbestosis can cause interstitial fibrosis and may also present with Kaplan syndrome. There is no increased risk of tuberculosis with asbestosis. Borreliosis. This is strongly associated with exposure in the aerospace and nuclear industries. Borreliosis causes diffuse interstitial pulmonary fibrosis. Non-caseating granulomas, similar to those seen in sarcoidosis, are often seen on histopathologic exam. Patients with borreliosis have a higher risk of developing primary lung cancer and can also develop core pulmonale. Pleural Disorders Each lung is located in its respective pleural cavity enclosed by parietal pleura. A number of disorders involve the pleural cavity. Pleural effusions are collections of fluid that develop in the pleural cavity. Normally, a small amount of pleural fluid moves from the parietal pleura into the pleural space, is absorbed by the visceral pleura in the lungs, and ultimately drains into the lymphatic system. This fluid movement depends on a parietal capillary hydrostatic pressure greater than the visceral capillary hydrostatic pressure and a parietal capillary oncotic pressure equal to the visceral oncotic pressure. Pleural effusions develop when these pressures are altered by disease processes. Elevated hydrostatic pressure within the visceral pleura is the mechanism whereby CHF and pulmonary embolism cause pleural effusions. CHF is the most common cause of pleural effusions. Reduced oncotic pressure within the visceral pleura is the mechanism whereby cirrhosis, nephrotic syndrome, and other conditions resulting in low albumin levels cause pleural effusions. Elevated permeability of the visceral pleural capillaries caused by inflammatory conditions such as systemic lupus erythematosus and pneumonia can cause pleural effusions. This is also the mechanism whereby malignancies affecting the pleura, like mesothelioma or cancer metastatic to the pleura, cause pleural effusions. Lymphatic obstruction that interferes with drainage from the visceral pleura can result in pleural effusions. This may occur in primary lung cancer. The cause of the pleural effusion can be determined by performing thoracentesis to sample and analyze the pleural fluid. Pleural effusions are classified as being transudative or exudative based on fulfilling one of the three Leitz criteria. The first component of Leitz criteria is a ratio, looking at the total protein in the effusion over the total protein in the serum. If that ratio is less than 0.5, the effusion is transudative. If it's greater than 0.5, it is exudative. The second component of Leitz criteria is another ratio. This time, we look at the LDH present in the effusion over the LDH present in the serum. If that ratio is less than 0.6, the effusion is considered transudative. If it's greater than 0.6, it's considered exudative.
The final component of Light's criteria looks at the LDH present in the effusion. If the amount of LDH present in the effusion is less than two-thirds of the upper limit of normal, then the effusion is transudative. If it's greater than two-thirds of the upper limit of normal, then the effusion is exudative. Transudates are caused by conditions that disturb capillary hydrostatic or oncotic pressure, like with CHF or cirrhosis. Exudates are protein-rich, have a cloudy appearance, and are caused by increased vessel permeability secondary to inflammation, like with pneumonia, lupus, or cancer. If an effusion is due to lymphatic obstruction, also called a chylothorax, the fluid appears milky and has elevated triglycerides. Suspect this in malignancies such as lymphomas. Physical exam of patients with pleural effusions may reveal dullness to percussion, decreased tactile fremitus, and reduced breath sounds in the areas of effusion. On chest x-ray, pleural effusions will often cause blunting of the costophrenic angles and conceal the border of the diaphragm. Treatment of pleural effusions generally involves treatment of the underlying cause and possibly drainage, which removes risk of infection and may provide symptomatic improvement. Spontaneous pneumothorax Spontaneous pneumothorax occurs when an intrapleural or subpleural bleb ruptures, creating a hole in the pleura. Recall that the intrapleural pressure is normally negative at rest, and that at equilibrium the lungs have a natural tendency to collapse, whereas the chest wall has an equal and opposite tendency to expand. Thus, a hole in the pleura causes an equalization of the intrapleural and atmospheric pressures, causing the lung to collapse and the chest wall to expand. Primary spontaneous pneumothoraces occur in the absence of underlying lung disease, are caused by blebs, and occur most commonly in thin and tall young men. Secondary pneumothoraces occur in the presence of underlying lung disease, with COPD being the most common secondary cause. Patients often report sudden-onset pleuritic chest pain and dyspnea. On physical exam, there may be reduced breath sounds and tympani to percussion on the affected side, with tracheal deviation toward the affected side. Chest radiographs may show loss of lung markings, a clear pleural reflection, and tracheal deviation toward the side of collapse. The vasculature beneath the visceral pleura gradually resorbs air, so small pneumothoraces may be treated with observation alone if the patient is asymptomatic. However, administration of 100% oxygen dramatically increases the rate of resorption. In patients in whom the pneumothorax is large and symptomatic, a chest tube may be inserted to evacuate the pleural air and re-expand the lung. Tension pneumothorax Tension pneumothorax is a life-threatening emergency that must be diagnosed and treated rapidly. Penetrating trauma to the lung or chest wall can create a one-way valve, flap-like tear in the lung parenchyma, which causes air leakage from the lung into the pleural space, but prevents air escape. As air continues to enter the pleural space without exiting, it accumulates, increases the pleural pressure, causes the lung to collapse, and compresses nearby structures such as the vena cava by placing them under tension. When the vena cava is compressed, preload to the heart is dramatically reduced, impairing cardiac output and resulting in hypotension and eventual death if not treated emergently. As with spontaneous pneumothorax, these patients present with a history of sudden-onset pleuritic chest pain and dyspnea. Physical exam may reveal JVD, or jugular venous distension, hypotension, evidence of hypoperfusion, reduced or absent breath sounds on the affected side, tympani to percussion on the affected side, and tracheal deviation away from the affected side. Because of the urgency and seriousness of this condition, diagnosis is best made clinically because taking time to confirm with imaging may result in a prolonged hypotension and death. Nevertheless, when chest radiography is performed, common findings include hyperlucent lung fields on the affected side with absent markings, diaphragm flattening on the affected side, and tracheal mediastinal deviation away from the affected side.
Pressure is first relieved via needle thoracotomy, which involves inserting a large bore IV needle into the second intercostal space along the midclavicular line. This relieves the tension on the vena cava and resolves the hypotension, providing enough time for a chest tube to be placed. That does it for respiratory pathology. Stay tuned for the next episode where we will discuss respiratory pharmacology. Thanks for listening. With that, we wrap up today's episode of the Crush Step 1 podcast. A big thank you to Elsevier Incorporated, the publishing company behind Crush Step 1, as well as all of my other books, for allowing us to put out this book in podcast format. Thank you for joining us, and please check out our other chapters.